You're listening to Wake Up Tucson. This podcast is a Bustos Media production on The Voice. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Dr. D. Filippo's here. Okay, so we did board pol. Oh, this is Agenda 17. It's an update on county initiatives to address homelessness and public safety. And I do want to mention this. Jan Lesher put out a memo dated February 3rd outlining an overview of additional housing services currently provided by the Pima County Departments for individuals experiencing homelessness. And she goes through and lists, you know, rapid rehousing, all the various types of programs. But I'm going to tell you something, and most of you would never know this, you would never see this. In order to get into those housing programs, because these are all virtually federally funded, you have to have what's called, it's a requirement, and it's called self-certification, which means you you go in and you literally fill out the application. Remember, you got to present like a social security card, driver's license. You got to be able to prove who you are and you're here legally in the country, et cetera. I once asked the people in the housing, how do you do self-certification? Without mentioning any names, and I knew the answer, but I needed them to tell me. The woman said to me, we don't do that. That would take too long a time. Well, let me tell you what the federal regulation (laughs) says. It says that the individual, they can self-certify in the beginning to get started on the process. But within 90 days, they must bring the supporting documentation. And I asked, again, do you require, do you ask for the supporting documentation? Oh, no, it would take too long to do that. But I do want people to be aware of this. The Biden administration in all of the Build Back Better money, et cetera, I don't know if you're aware of it, but that money can be expended out to individuals who are not here legally in the country. Hmm. And and what it says is basically that if there's an illegal in a household and there are other people living in there that are legal, you will not be able to displace those legal people because of the fact of the illegal. So everybody in the household can receive it. So, you know, I look at it and I say, we have so many families that legally here, they need help, whether it's housing, whether it's jobs, whether it's food, whether it's stuff they get at the community food bank. And we cannot service these people. You're going to see we have three contracts coming back up again. Okay. So let's Amendment. go to those contracts real quick. So the I like to say it's the people who lucked out uh, getting these contracts because between the dining people, the hotel people, and the transportation, and the Catholic community services people. Yes. Now we have they're a, killing it. Yeah. Oh, are, they, oh, are you kidding me? It's like a cash cow. We have agenda item 23, 24, and 25. 23 is the inn of Southern Arizona. 24 is the city of Tucson, and 25 is Catholic Community Services. Now, they're all centered around this aspect of (laughs) something happened. Either they didn't have enough time to spend the money, either the money got to them late, or so, but something happened because what happened is the feds probably put out an edict that said, you got to get all these expenses in by this date, et cetera. Pima County appealed that. Grants Management and Innovation appealed it. And they said, basically, we need more time. So the feds came back and said, all right, we're going to give you from... So if you don't spend it, they're going to take the money back? Well... If it wasn't advanced, they would give you the money back. If it's for reimbursement, they just you won't be able to submit your re- invoices for reimbursement. It's one or the other. Right. Okay. So what happened is the county came back and said, and you'll see it on the agendas items for each one of these. You must approve this because if you don't approve this, we cannot go and cover those expenses from January 1 to March 31 of 2023. 
Follow me? Now, Catholic Community Services on the contract, it's $1,502,211.28. Okay. But this is an amendment. So that amount is now up to $5.6 million. Okay. City of Tucson asking for a no cost extension to spend fund monies also. In of Southern Arizona, no cost extension to expend funds awarded $490,675. So look at just between the Inn of Southern Arizona and Catholic Community Services, you are talking $2 million. Not chump change. Yeah. And and so Grant is saying to the supervisor, hey, if you don't prove this, with these people in this community are going to be out $2 million. What the heck are we doing with that anyways? All right, <laughs> let's go to addendum number one. <laughs> It's EMS leasing. Now, remember this lease? I just want to say it one more time. I want to get one more. I love it. That's that balloon getting deflated, okay? <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna, oh, isn't that kind of like what they did over the weekend <laughs> with the Chinese balloon? We did they the, say they punched it out with a half-million-dollar missile? <laughs> yeah. They did? Yeah. Hey, so. maybe, they, maybe we can hire them. <laughs> They'd be perfect for Pima County, wouldn't they? Joe had to let it go all the way across America and get the Chinese one last <laughs> thing of their pictures that they needed, and then we'll, we'll blow yeah, it out. Yeah, Joe says, hold on. I need the rest of my money that you owe me. Okay. <laughs> hold my ice cream. Yeah, yeah, really, no lie. Okay, so this is Addendum 1 EMS leasing. This is very interesting. And this is a beef that I have. And let me tell you, Adelita, if you're listening, which I don't think you are, but nevertheless, somebody get this message to Adelita. You claim that you want the county attorney, Sam Brown et al., to go through and review all of this. Well, let me tell you something. Then you make darn sure that you get the information on the agenda item sheets on page one, not buried on page two, not buried in the contract. You put it on page one. Here's what's going on with the EMS leasing. They say that it's a correction in the header box. They need to amend the original lease amount. Then I say to them, well, what they're saying is we got to go back and add in $79,340 for a new total of $411,828.78. So real quick, this is the former call center office building that's on Drexel west of I-19 that they're going to convert into the new illegal immigrant center or yeah, another one that that that's this fills in with i believe what jan was talking about the big box concept for illegal immigration processing gotcha. okay um now and remember actually this ems leasing i didn't have a chance to pull the original document but but because this is not a ctn now i, I want you to re- remember this when you're looking at county documents if it's a ct that means contract right okay if it's a CTN, that means a revenue contract. It means that revenue is come there. It's being paid to us. Okay, this is a CT. This is not a CTN. I see that. And if I recall correctly, aren't we underwriting the cost of this? Wasn't that part of what the original document was on the EMS leasing? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So what it is basically is. We we we're actually being noticed that we shortened <laughs> we shorted ourselves on the payment of seventy nine thousand three hundred and forty dollars, which represents a security deposit of fifty thousand and an estimated operating and maintenance expense of twenty nine thousand three hundred and forty dollars for a grand total of seventy nine thousand three hundred and forty dollars. And I say to you, <laughs> if you want full legal review and transparency, then note. 
these figures on the front page of the agenda item report. You would never know what they're doing. And, you know, the lay people just really don't know how to look at these documents. What I say is, Adelita, do not pick and choose what you're going after. If you want to say you want full review and transparency, then you make darn sure that it's on page one of the agenda item cover sheet. Or could it, let me play devil's advocate, could it just be a mistake? It doesn't matter whether it's a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) They wrote the contract wrong, okay? They have to go back and correct it, which is, okay, go back and correct it. But put the information, disclose the full information. When you look at that, look at that agenda item cover sheet. What does it basically say? Oh, we have to correct the header. It doesn't say, oh, we forgot to put in $79,340 that we owe or that we that we, the taxpayers, are willing to absorb you on are, behalf of EMS. You are correct. It's yes. definitely not on the cover it's sheet. It's not on the cover sheet. And that is a notorious aspect, I'm going to say, of the Dems in Pima County, because I've only found this type of action. I started reviewing these in 2015. You know, it's interesting. So on the cover sheet, uh, the bolded area that this is in is called metrics available to (laughs) measure performance. Then underneath it says corrected header box in lease agreement. Yes, that that's seems, what that's, I'm saying. That seems a little, even also non sequitur. Why yes. is that? So, so it's like, you know, Adelita, you should have kicked this back. You had no business approving this. I think it goes against community norms. Well, not only that, let me tell you. Here's the other thing. Remember, this is money that the taxpayers are on the line for. Yeah, it does go against community norms. Except, wait a minute, the community norms are for lack of full disclosure no, and transparency. Okay. So Bill Maher on his show on HBO had a, a, a comparison of the woke revolution of whatever, I would say revolution, the woke uh, stupidity of what's going on in the world of governance, politics, especially academia, right? And then at the same time, compared it to the cultural revolution, uh, Mao Zedong, uh, yes, the guy who basically murdered millions of his fellow citizens to make sure communism came on through strong, as we like to say. So... Uh, the same uh, people that sent a 200-foot-tall uh, balloon with possible explosives on it now, they're saying, because it, it, it was supposed to maybe blow Charming. itself up. Charming. So I'm sure, I, I'm sure, will Joe talk about it tonight? I don't know. I guess we got to figure out, We gotta, maybe we should do this for the rest of the show, right, is what kind of, uh, you know, remember we used to do drunk bingo? A segment bi- called Will Joe Talk About drunk It? Drunk bingo, right? What are, what, are the, what are the key phrases that Joe will or will not talk about, but... Uh, so Bill Maher talks. Let's let's go right to Bill. And again, he's. Some of you would say he's red pilling, which is possible. And maybe the rest of the crew is just going insane. So part of today's woke revolution, you need to study the part of revolutions where they spin out of control because the revolutionaries get so drunk on their own purifying elixir, they imagine <laughs> they can reinvent the very nature of human beings. <laughs> Communists. Communists thought selfishness, selfishness, could be cast out of human nature. Russian revolutionaries spoke of the new Soviet man who wasn't motivated by self-interest, but instead wanted to be part of a collective. No, it turns out he wanted to be on a yacht in a Gucci tracksuit holding a vodka and a prostitute. <laughs> Not standing in line all day for a potato. The problem with communism and with some very recent ideologies here at home is that they think you can change reality by screaming at it. 
that you can bend human nature by holding your breath, but that's the difference between reality and your mommy. <laughs> I love that Bill's audience Lincoln doesn't know when to laugh or clap. Lincoln you can really repeal fun. all past history, but you still cannot repeal human nature. But he's canceled now, so f*** him. <laughs> Yesterday I asked ChatGPT, are there any similarities between today's woke revolution and Chairman Mao's cultural revolution of the 1960s? And it wrote back, how long do you have? <laughs> Because, again, in China, we saw how a revolutionary thought he could do a page one rewrite of humans. Mao ordered his citizens to throw off the four olds, old thinking, old culture, old customs, and old habits. So, um, your whole life went in the garbage overnight, no biggie. And those who resisted were attacked by an army of purifiers called the Red Guard, who went around the country putting dunce caps on people yeah who didn't take to being a new kind of mortal being a lot of pointing and shaming went on oh and about a million dead and the only way to survive was to plead insanity for the crime of being insufficiently radical then apologize and thank the state for the chance to see what a piece of shit you are and of course submit to re-education or as we call it here in america freshman orientation <laughs> Listen to this story. There's a law professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, named Jason Kilborn, whose crime was that on one of his exams, he used a hypothetical case where a black female worker sued her employer for race and gender discrimination, alleging Katie that Hobbs. managers had called her two slur words, the type of real-world case these students might one day confront. And knowing the extreme sensitivity of today's students, he didn't write the two taboo words on the test, just the first letter of each. He was teaching his students how to fight racism in the place where it matters most, the criminal justice system. But because he merely alluded to those words, again, in the service of a good cause, he was banned from campus, placed on indefinite leave, and made to wear the dunce cap. <laughs> No, not really the dunce cap part, but, but our American version of that. Eight weeks of sensitivity training, weekly 90-minute sessions with a diversity trainer, and having to write five self-reflection papers. A grown man, a liberal law professor. If you can't see the similarities between that and this, the person who need, needs re-education is you. Yes, we, we do have our own Red Guard here, but they do their rampaging on Twitter. Here's a cute example from a couple of years ago. The banjo player. Oh, this is great. From Mumford & Sons tweeted that he liked a book, a book that apparently had not been approved by the revolution. So, of course, he had to delete the tweet, then take time away from the band, Oh my God, you mean this could have affected Mumford and Sons? <laughs> and then the cringing apology, I have come to better understand the pain caused by the book I endorsed. Pain? From a book? Unless he hit the drummer over the head with it. <laughs> now,
What happened to I can read whatever I want? Don't worry, I'm a musician. It won't happen again. <laughs> well played. <laughs> there was once a very different musician named John Lennon who wrote a song called Revolution. And people who didn't really listen to it thought it was a rah-rah call for revolution. No, it was the opposite. The lyrics are, you say you want a revolution? Well, you know, we all want to change the world. But if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't going to make it with anybody anyhow. There's a guy who understood how good intentions can turn into the insane arrogance of thinking your revolution is so awesome and your generation is so mind-bendingly improved that you have bequeathed the world with a new kind of human. You're welcome. <laughs> with, with communists, that human was no longer selfish. In America today, that human is no longer born male or female. And obesity is not something that affects health. You can be healthy at any size. Really, we voted on it. <laughs> a formerly serious magazine last year published with a straight face an article called Separating Sports by Sex Doesn't Make Sense. Yes, it does. Because again, we haven't reinvented Homo sapiens since Crystal Pepsi came out. I've spent three decades on TV mocking Republicans who said climate change was just a theory. And now I got to deal with people who say, you know what else is just a theory? Biology. Yep, that's where you're at. So, all wow. Right. So again, when you when you see what comes out of the some of these politicians, you see this coming out of the media, local media. I thought I thought Bill kind of nailed it in a lot of different ways. So. Our next guest was introduced to me by Terry from the Oral Valley Historical Society, Wynn Brown. Wynn, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me on here. And uh, you have two books that you, uh, you, you brought today. One is Remarkable Women of Arizona and then um, The Forgotten Botanist about Sarah Plummer Lemon. That's lemon with two M's. Take the hint. We'll get right. there. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, the mountain is not named for a misspelled citrus tree. <laughs> I can see, there has to be someone from back east who's gone up the Mount Lemon Highway looking for citrus. There, people always <laughs> ask me about that. Yeah, I, I, wow, you got cactus and ponderosa <laughs> pine and lemon trees? That's great. That's great. Um, so where's where's Wynn from in the in the world? Where are you from originally? I am, I'm a Ford Motor product. I'm well played. Born in, you and, and Ted Nugent. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> found on road dead. Fix or repair daily. Yeah. I was born in Detroit and then moved a lot of different places. Gotcha. And, Came to Tucson in the 70s to go to grad school. And what did you do in grad school? Um, I majored in, I actually created an interdisciplinary master's program in biology and scientific illustration. Wow. So why scientific illustration? Were you someone who did art as a, as a young lady and then it kind of all came together or? I, I was always interested in, in science as far as natural history and I was always interested in drawing and it was a logical combination. I'm really interested in intersections. I like when things overlap. <laughs> and scientific <laughs> illustration is a wonderful overlap of science and art. 
Um, and it's drawing is a great way to observe what it is that you're looking at to really see it. Well, and there's so many uh, classes out there in the world of science where you learn by drawing it or kind of, I mean, I, I used to have a, uh, a class back in New York years ago learning about how to do sports medicine, and you used to color muscle groups with exactly. your crayons, right, to figure out how it all kind of came together. So, Well, and, uh, and Sarah Lemon was really a person who was in those two intersections of science and art because she was a botanical illustrator. Gotcha. Your book, you were talking about the forgotten botanist, Sarah Plummer Lemon's Life of Science and Art. So this one seems, you just did a, a, a book, on, well, recently, you always had this book about strong women, right? Mm -hmm. You're a science, scientific illustration kind of gal yourself, and you lived in Tucson. <laughs> so this one kind of, now in retrospect, this feels like a, a no-brainer that you jumped on this one, I feel like. But tell, tell, tell us about the journey of Wynne Brown to uh, Sarah Plummer Lemon. I was doing a presentation for Sky Island Alliance Oh, it must be 12, 13 years ago gotcha. about remarkable women of the Sky Islands. And I think that was when I first learned that Mount Lemon was named for an 1880s woman <laughs> botanist and artist who climbed the mountain on her honeymoon at age 44. Wow. And I thought, now that's pretty intriguing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And then I found out a few years later that uh, the archives in Berkeley had six linear feet of material on Sarah and her husband, John Gill Lemon. And, but I didn't know if it was letters, if it was drawings, if it was field notes. And I thought, okay, one of these days I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there. In 2015, I finally got there. And, just, and that was when I learned that there were boxes and boxes of letters. And they also had two boxes of Sarah's paintings, the only surviving watercolors. And most of those are done in the Huachucas, okay. which was pretty thrilling. Um, and But nobody had seen the paintings recently because they're so incredibly fragile. All the paintings were on paper. They were um, kept in, in Hawaii so that there was a lot of humidity and they weren't protected. So there were a lot of, there was a huge amount of bug damage to them. And so the archivists had not been able to even look at the, at the second painting because they were afraid if they moved the first one, it would just crumble. Right. So in 2015, I paid um, a, a local art conservator, professional art conservator in Berkeley to come and assess the artwork because universities are low on money and uh, University of California had no money to do it. That can't be true. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah. <laughs> at least that's what I was At the told. University of California, Berkeley, we, we right. don't have any money. <laughs> right. <laughs> we have no money for art conservation. Right. So uh, my husband, Dave Peterson, and I and the art conservator had spent a very long day looking at the, the artwork in these two boxes. There were 276 paintings. And I photographed every one of them because I wanted images of those paintings in the book that I had not yet written and I did not yet have a contract for. Any crumbling? Any what? Any crumbling? No, the, the corners, the, the, you have to be really careful because the paper is just so fragile. Gotcha. But that's why you pay a professional art conservator to to handle them. Sure. Um, so I um, I photographed all of them, and those and the photographs. There are about thirty of those images that are in the book, and I was very pleased. The book is published by University of Nebraska Press. Yes, it's under the Bison Books imprint, which and that imprint is for general readers. So when uh, you, you're coming out of pocket, 
with an art conservator, which I assume is not cheap. No, uh, no, an art conservator uh, is... Especially for Berkeley. Right, yeah, it's $1,500 a day. Yikes. Hopefully you only had them for a half a day. I had her for a whole day. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the exciting thing is that just last year, the archivist discovered two more boxes of Sarah Lemon's paintings in the archives. They were in much a much bigger... The boxes are much bigger, and they were stored somewhere else. And I think maybe they did some, some house cleaning uh, during the pandemic and found these two boxes. And so there's another 200 box or 200 paintings. Uh, so um, in August, once again, I paid the art conservator. And this time, the other person who joined Team Sarah, as we refer to it, um, is Sarah Lemon's great-great-grandniece. Oh, wow. And so the five of us, the archivist, Dave, the art conservator, um, and Sarah's great-great-grandniece and I worked for three days getting all of these paintings into archival quality folders separated with glassine sheets and then putting them in archival quality boxes. What that means is that now other researchers can come and see these paintings. These paintings will never travel. They're way, way too fragile. But what I'm hoping is that eventually, maybe with enough donations, is possible to do digital restorations. Um, of since I have images of all of them, restore those digitally so that people could see maybe what they looked like 140 years ago, 150 years ago when they were created here in the set. We found that the new box actually has some from the Santa Catalinas. So you said that. Um Sarah's sister was a pack rat. Yes. Sorry, family archivist. Right. Order, no, she wasn't a hoarder. Rat. <laughs> so, a keeper of correspondence is what I like to say. So for all you people out there that your family says, you know, why are you saving this? Please keep it. Please scan it. Please. These, these letters are treasures. They are historical treasures. So how did it end up in Berkeley, the the journey of these things? So she 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 ended up in Hawaii. Well, she didn't. No, oh, she, she didn't. Yeah, she she married John Lemon, um, who was another botanist, and they settled in Oakland, and they had what they called a herbarium, which is where they kept all their plant specimens. Gotcha. Um, and the, that collection of plant specimens went to Berkeley because the herbarium was right down the street gotcha. from Berkeley. Okay, that makes sense. But all the letters and those two boxes of paintings um, were with Sarah's sister. She gave them to her daughter, uh, Sarah's niece. Sarah's niece gave them to her son, who ended up being a botanist in Hawaii. In fact, the Plant Sciences Laboratory at University of Hawaii is named for him. Oh, wow. The Harold St. John Plant Laboratory. When you say a botanist fell in love with a botanist, it feels like a Hallmark movie. You know, it does, doesn't it? Chlo yes. Chlorophylla love or something <laughs> like that. Oh, I love that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Sarah's experience on Mount Lemmon because uh, I don't want to run out of time. So what, 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 what was Sarah doing in Arizona and why was she climbing up Mount Lemmon at, as part of her honeymoon at age four? 44 or 45, like you said. The the lemons were at, well, the time of the 1870s, 1880s were a time of really fierce botanic activity. I am just wow. feverish activity. Everybody was trying to find new plants, identify them. And the Catalinas were an area that had not been explored. Why was there, I mean, you say the word fierce, right? <laughs> so why 
was it a was it a was it just there was this grand enlightenment that they wanted to was there some sort of motive financially if you did such things no what was it, it was no, just botanists right? have that's never made thinking. a lot of that's money. what i'm thinking so <laughs> it was just there was some sort of the thrill of discovery going through the yeah. botany world yeah the hunt for finding new species having species named for you the primary botanist american botanist was a man named asa gray who was at harvard and there were people all over the country scrambling around ravines climbing trees whacking down branches and flowers and pine cones and sending all their material to asa gray and then he and one other person at harvard would identify and figure out that these were new species they would name them and often they would name the species for the discoverer so sarah and john lemon are actually credited with three percent of the vascular plants in arizona actually i should say <laughs> sarah doesn't get a lot of the credit because the plant labels are usually identified as jg lemon and wife Gotcha. Just the that was the times. Right. I'll spare you the feminist rant. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. We're talking with author Wynn Brown. The book is the Forgotten Botanist. I assume we can find this at all fine Amazons now, and uh, you can. But it'd be great to support the local bookstores, mostly me books. Uh, Antigone. Okay. Um, and they both stock it. And I'm, I'm happy to send anybody a signed book plate if they want to contact me on my website. And what's your website? Surprisingly enough, it's winbrown.com. Damn it. Hey, when's that easy? <laughs> U.S. Congressman Juan Siscomani. What's up, sir? Good morning. Buenos dias, amigo. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Just fine. So there you were yesterday uh, listening to a... A man talk in front of a podium uh, at the State of the Union. Uh, let's talk, before we get to your response, let's talk about the vibe of the room, what you heard from the president, and how the whole thing went down. Well, th yeah, thanks for having me on. Always always good to chat with you. This, this was my first State of the Union, obviously, being here as a member. I've listened to the State of the Union speeches uh, throughout the years, and it was... Uh, the vibe was new to me, given that I was on the floor, and we were we were ready to hear solutions, Chris. Honestly, I mean, we were hoping to hear more, uh, at least an acknowledgement of where we are in 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 the on the border, where we are on the economy, where we are on the fentanyl crisis, where we are on on so many points here that that we needed to to listen more about. And uh, frankly, we not enough uh, from of the things that we wanted to that we needed to hear about and. Uh, some some bad ideas out there being proposed so then then we gave the response in spanish and that's uh you know that was last night and and then that i kind of laid out my my thoughts of that so you know i don't want to the president had a lot of amazing and by amazing i mean weird and maybe not so truthful things come out of his mouth but it looked like your uh your response was really talking about um everyone's trying to pursue the American dream and how what's been going down the last two years isn't really helping that. Is that a, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that, yeah. And that, that's been, I mean, anybody that's ever heard me talk, I, I mentioned this in, in one way or another. And I, I really do believe that the government doesn't create American dreams. I mean, that that's you and I do that. People do that. The listeners do that. What the government can do is create an environment where people can pursue their, their dreams of jobs, of, a company of 
whatever it is that they want to go do. And this is where the government comes in. And that's why what the president was proposing in so many areas is just not leading into that. And that, that was the message. It's, it's, you know, what, what he wants to do and what he has been doing is impacting people's lives. It's destroying families in a lot of ways, especially around the fentanyl crisis. One, but one of the points that you just mentioned that I think it's important to actually lead with today was his statement on Social Security and Medicare. This is something that has been a lot of misinformation out there of where Republicans stand. We've been very clear. I've been very clear where I stand on this. And let me, again, be 100 percent clear that under no circumstances will we cut Social Security or Medicare. What we need to do is actually secure it, secure these programs, and not only that, but strengthen them as well. And that's that's where we are. They're off the table on these debt ceiling discussions. I have neighbors coming up to me um, that are have known me for years, and, and they say, "Hey, I'm, I'm hearing this about Republicans," and, and I and I keep clearing it. So this is just a good opportunity. And I think last night was another good opportunity, uh, given the, the the reaction that the president saw from our side of the aisle when when he talked about this issue and misrepresented our position. The, the, and now I think it's clear the country knows where the, we stand. The timing of this is so funny because, so Schweikert was on and we were, he had a video where he said he got, David usually doesn't get pissed off on the floor, but he got pissed off on the floor because someone from the media was talking about how Republicans want to kill Social Security and Medicare, right? And he's like, and we were just having this whole thing. Well, who was it? Give me a name. Who said that, right? And then all of a sudden, Biden says, well, you know, the, our friends on the Republican Party want to sunset Social Security and Medicare. And this is where a lot of people, uh, uh, Republicans were yelling back at him in the... And if you notice, he backed down pretty hard on it, where it went from the GOP, then a few of you, and then there's one of two of you, whatever. And I'm, so some people are like, oh, the lack of decorum. He needed to be called out on that. You just can't say crap like that on international television. It was yeah, it was a straight up uh, a misrepresentation of our position, and I think it's just an effort from from the the far left in this case to define and and uh, let people uh, lie to people about where Republicans stand on this. But it was it was a moment of clarity, I think, and and even he said at some point, if I remember correctly, that well, it looks like now that we uh, that we agree on this, we were never in. in uh, we were never in a position as Republicans to want to cut this. I've never been in any conversation that that has been discussed uh, as a potential plan. So uh, I'm, I'm confident and proud of the position that we have on this. Now, there is wasteful spending in government. I mean, I don't think that's the other thing. I don't he didn't acknowledge this. And, and the fact that that you can't you can sit there and, and not acknowledge the fact that there is wasteful spending in government in other areas that, that don't include Social Security and Medicare is is outrageous. And there are areas where we can you know, do a better job with, with our finances. And that's what we're going to have to look at. So a friend of mine this morning was like, well, I can't believe there was all this, you know, there was lack of decorum and all this. But I said, look, the guy said that unlawful migration dropped 97% under his watch. Unbelievable. Right? <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, the, when we were sitting there, I, it, I was sitting in the, one of the back rows as, as a good freshman. You know? sure. But, uh, but I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm just thinking, did, did I mishear that? Because it, it, it's completely the opposite from what we're hearing uh, from people on the ground. I don't know if you saw a recent statement, which was also uh, he was quoted on the on a tweet here, the Tucson sector chief, where he said that uh, before he was calling this situation unprecedented. He'd never seen it before. He said, now I don't have an adjective to describe the situation. 
Right. That's exactly what he said. And this guy's telling and, the country. There's people who don't know who heard him last night who went, oh, wow, those Republicans are yeah. liars. Lawful immigration. The president just said it's 97% no. down. No, talk to people. Talk to people in Cochise County. Talk to Sheriff Daniels. Talk to Border Patrol. Talk to uh, those working and uh, you know, the, the fentanyl crisis. The, these are this is this is a, a real situation. And I talked about that. Uh, in terms of, of where Pima County stands on this and in, in terms of this being the leading cause of death. But you know what? Pima County is not alone in this. There are many counties and many places around the country, unfortunately, that, that this is a situation. So I'm, I'm going to talk to members that are not from border regions or, or not from uh, areas where you would expect this to be plaguing their communities. And everybody, everybody's afraid of this as a parent. You know, this is what keeps you up at night. So I've done the trip with uh, Biggs, and he takes freshmen down to the border, right? Freshmen Congress people, mm-hmm. and you just see their eyeballs are just like, what? You know, and you talk to Dan Bell at the Bell Ranch and the various people who have been down there for decades dealing with us, and they're like, what? And these are Republicans, right? And Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's healthy and it's good for people to see uh, first, firsthand what's happening there because they can also see the balance between the security piece and and that people are, are you know live on the border we trade on the border we have tourism on the border we have um back and forth uh, uh you know just people going back and forth for transit purposes so that they can see the full picture of what the border looks like i think when people don't see it they have this idea that it's either uh, perfect with no issues or that that it's a complete war zone so it's it's good for people to come see it and, and i'm and i'm glad that it happens did he did he did this man say anything coherent about the effect of inflation which of course he's telling you the all the infrastructure and stimulus they did is amazing but that's what's driving you know most of the inflation going on right now and of course fuel um any what, what was what was joe's uh solution to help the uh, working family that's getting crushed right now well it, it looks like in his idea raising taxes is the way to go that <laughs> he talked about that at the beginning of the speech over and over again and he gave multiple examples of taxes that he wants to uh, raise more and more up which only hurts the pockets of people that are trying to afford uh, bread and milk right now and you got you look at eggs i mean it looks like eggs are a luxury now for people to be able to buy uh, food is continuing to rise in cost and gas is still too expensive so he no no plan for that except to raise taxes and then and then he goes off on uh, talking about um, the, the overregulation of businesses so he's going to tell them what to do uh, it looks <laughs> like he wants to run their customer service department now it's <laughs> uh so again now, now let me say that some areas that that I I do want to uh, work on and will continue to work on that I think there is there is an opportunity here is with veterans. Um, I did like what he had to say about that about tackling the issue of um, uh, veteran suicide rates are they're extremely high and and one is too many and this is a problem in our country and and I sit on the veteran. Um, affairs committee and this is one of the issues that we're going to be looking at so hopefully here we can find some some common ground and and and, you know just put everything aside and and focus on on benefiting and helping our veterans now again so the 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 concern for our veterans which is definitely warranted right we've been talking about this one for at least 10 years or more 
right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, this is just like uh, John Stewart had this great montage of presidents who said we're going to get off of foreign oil, right? And it goes, it, it's every one since uh, Eisenhower if you if, uh, in the montage. You're like, you couldn't go further back than that, but we do. So when we talk about veterans, right, and you were doing this and with, you know, working with veterans and a little bit with, you know, when you're working with Doug, right? What, what, what do we, you know, what do we, everyone says, oh, we should do more wraparound services and things. We, what, what, what's something that we, that you think is uh, kind of a low hanging fruit that we're not doing to help veterans possibly? What, what, what are we missing here? Well, we're, we're, first of all, I think it's the, the, uh, the awareness of it. I think we need resources to help veterans with, with health issues, mental health issues, with, uh, with resources for economic opportunity. I think uh, re-entry programs are important. This is, this is all that, that just at first hand that we know. We had one meeting in the committee with uh, Veteran Affairs on, on the Republican side. We had a, a small uh, just check-in meeting, and uh, about half or more of the members are veterans, and I'm learning a lot of what they, you know, the programs that are helpful to them and for them. Uh, at the state level, there were simple things like, um, actually, I like something that the governor would say that in, in, um, uh, for, for veterans and, and reentry on these programs, that was, that was key on the partnership between the federal government and, uh, and the state government. I think there's a lot that we can do together. So these are some of the things that, that I, I'm looking forward to looking at in veteran affairs and, and going from there. So talk, before I let you go, talk about the assault on the American dream, because that's, that's what I've been seeing, right, is we know that this country, and, you know, we've talked about your personal story, right, is the best country on the planet that you can remake yourself, build yourself, and transform yourself into something better economically, educationally, and otherwise. Talk about what's going on right now in America that we need to get better at to to loosen up those those obstacles because all I see is nothing but obstacles for the American dream right now. Sure, I mean only here in America can you have a, a story like like mine. My parents moved here when I was a young kid, and I grew up here. You know the story. My my dad drives a bus, and, um, and we learn English, go through the whole process, become citizens. And my, my dad says, "Now you're a member of Congress. You know where else can this happen?" And that's the American dream that it's not just in my story. There are millions of stories out there like this. Uh, but the, the, this, this opportunity, this American dream concept is, is feeling more and more unattainable when people look at the, the high cost of things or the, uh, the college is unavailable or uh, they can't purchase a home because it's so expensive that, gosh, they can't even purchase the, the right food sometimes that they need. So all these things impact the ability for people to pursue their, their American dream. And, and let me be clear, when I talk about the American dream, it's not about financial success per se, it's, you know, or, or only. It's, it's about being able to pursue what do you want to go uh, do and be free to do that and, and, and be able to, to, uh, to pursue your happiness that way. It's not measured by dollars and cents. It's measured by what do you want to do. And, and that's what this country is great about. Just you want something, go up and get it. You know, go and, and, and get it done and fight for it. And if, and if you work hard enough, and, and, I, and I believe if you have uh, the work ethic and the faith for it, uh, you'll get there. Uh, but I think that's under attack because the more than the government grows and they run your business or they run your life or they run every aspect of your life, then, then the, uh, your ability to pursue your own American dream just diminishes. And, and that's the attack on, on the American dream that I see. Uh, before I – no, I got one last question. So you had to record this thing yesterday, your response? Yes. 
How many takes did it did it take you to do it? How did it work? Come on, Chris. Why are you going to ask me that? <laughs> um, <laughs> if you like, because people want to know uh, that their elected officials are real human beings that struggle <laughs> oh, like they man. do. Well, <laughs> let's just say that it was a couple. All right, more, more than a couple. It, you know, it. But but it, um, it, it was more on the um, camera angle and that kind of stuff. I, I really did want to <laughs> sound real. I I wrote this thing. We. You know, my, my team obviously looked at it, and, and we, we worked on this together, but they, they didn't give me a script. They said, I, we just want you to, you know, you, you go ahead and, and express your own feelings on it. So it was very much mine. So if it sounded natural on the screen, it's because it, it really was mine. It was from my, my own brain and, and heart. So um, I hope people enjoyed it, and, and uh, we're, we're, I believe every word on there. So, Matt, Juan's a very uh, handsome man. Is there a bad camera angle on, on Juan Siscomani? No. <laughs> no, there's not. <laughs> See, that's why I like being on with you guys. I should just do this every day. That's okay. That's, I, I get we, you know, We, we want to do this on a regular basis. To, you know, A lot of our listeners know you pretty well, and uh, they want to follow along with your journey and, uh, in an unscripted way. So, you know, you're going to be on the, on the, on the high wire with D Simone for the next couple of years. Sorry, buddy. Well, well, I, I'm, unscripted is one good way to describe the conversations on this show with you guys. And, <laughs> I, and I like it. I think I like it. So. <laughs> All right, sir. Well, good job last night. Uh, Matt said you, uh, he watched it live on Univision. Univision. Yes. Good job, buddy. I was asleep, yeah. but you know, I watched it this morning. So good job. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for the support. Mike Vellante from the America First Policy Institute. Mike, welcome back, sir. Thank you, thank you, Chris. Good morning. Good morning to your audience. So Great to be with you. When you look back at the Arizona election of 2022, the general election, and I, 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 I my, my, my take has been it's a tapestry of various things that went wrong. What is what what what's the Mike Vellante as the director of election integrity at the uh, America First Policy Institute? What's your analysis of what happened in the why, – why, why were things not so great for Republicans in the 2022 election? Well, if, if you want to talk, it's two different questions, really. One is on the national level, you know, what happened and, and what didn't happen. The, the second one is specifically within Arizona and, and how the elections were run. Um, taking the second one first, um, within Arizona – you, you know, you said it was a, a tapestry of, of things, which I thought was rather polite. I think the other words you used earlier uh, was dumpster fire about last night's speech. <laughs> I think that's probably a better analogy, to be honest with you. I do appreciate the the artistry of tapestry. Thank you. Um, but, uh, it, you know, and it really was a dumpster fire because it was I think everybody was watching more closely. We certainly had more involvement by um, just average citizens around the country keeping closer watch as poll watchers um, and poll workers in, in different polling places around the country. And there were problems, as there always are around the country, but I think Arizona was ground zero. And I think it ended up being ground zero because there were such major problems that raised questions that raised security issues, that raised um, chain of custody issues with ballots, um, that raised the ability to actually execute the election in a fair way. Um, and some of it was 
common sense. I mean, you know, we talked about a couple of things last week about uh, ranked choice voting and how complicated it is. Well, you know, the bottom line is if you can't get the right size paper for your tabulating machines, chances are you're not going to do really well on counting ballots multiple times the way RCD requires. I mean, those are the kinds of things that um, just really have a system breakdown. And it it started uh, in the beginning on Election Day, you know, specifically within Maricopa County. Um, And what's interesting is that it carried over for a while in the election counting process, Um, not so much with Kerry Lake's race, but um, one of the most noticeable things to me was uh, the attorney general's race where in Pinell County, you know, when they did a hand count, they found almost a 50 percent change in the vote. I mean, the uh, Republican uh, Abe was um, behind by 500 and some odd votes. And then when they recounted, he was only behind by 200 and some odd votes. And in a small county, that's highly unusual to see that kind of of change. So I think it was a number of things that um, really went wrong. You know, one of the things that I can't say for certain is that that it was planned or orchestrated or whatever. But truthfully, it doesn't matter because if if even if it was done because people just didn't do their job right, those people should be fired. I mean, if you have a job and you're supposed to do something and you don't do it and really you only have, you know, one one job and you don't do it right and you don't do it well and it creates chaos and it creates um, uh, insecurity or lack of confidence, then you certainly shouldn't be given another shot at doing another election. Well, there's truth to that, right? And I've, I've told a lot of frustrated Republicans that all the people you thought screwed you in 2020 were still there, right? Including yeah, the, board I, of, the board of supervisors and all. If they really screwed you and they didn't like anyone related to the Trump man, then they screwed, they were, you left them there to screw you again, right? right? I mean... Right. And, and and as far as I've I've been able to tell, they're, they're still there for 2024. Right. And and that's and that should simply not be the case. And and if even if you want to take politics completely out of it and just use the word competence or common sense, common sense says if you can't get the paper, the right size paper for your tabulating machines, if you have your clerks or your your polling supervisors standing there telling people who are waiting in long line to vote that the tabulating machine, one machine isn't working at all and the other is only working 75% of the time, you just got to blow the thing up and start again. So I agree with that. Now, <clears throat> when some of our brothers and sisters out there uh, want to say the only reason Carrie Lake and Abe Hamaday and Mark Fincham lost is because... They got screwed because of the tabulators and or someone in Maricopa County pressed the right button to switch votes, right? That, they say that's the only reason they lost. What would Mike Vellante tell those people? I, I, would, I would say in Abe's case, I, I think Abe has, because the vote is so close, I think Abe, Abe's case is one that, um, you know, needs to be looked at really closely. Again, the, the, what happened in Pinell County you know, is is a red flag, a huge red flag. In in the other cases, uh, you know, I, I you just can't throw that. Here's the problem I have with that. If you just throw that out, then you ignore what may or may not have happened that caused the loss. And you don't do what needs to be done to correct that going forward 
to make sure you don't make the same mistake again. Amen. And and that's and that's what you know. You have to learn by what happened. And it wasn't just in Arizona. One of the things I keep saying to people, and and this is not necessarily a, an AFPI thing, just my background, you know, having been involved in, in politics and elections for a very long time, is that one of the things we haven't addressed um, is the the appalling lack of accuracy on our polling. Ugh. I mean, you know, we... we Polling is a train we, wreck, dude. We, we have, I, and this is what's interesting, is, you know, in one particular state, won't mention it, but you can probably guess, I called, you know, I had some friends that were running for office. I called their campaigns on election day, and I said, how are you guys doing? And they said, well, we think we're going to win three to four. And I was like, wow, okay, that's great, because it was a Democrat state. And and then because I knew people on the other side, I called them and said, hey, how you doing? It's good to talk to you. I haven't talked in a while. Which, you know, how you guys doing? And they're telling me that they're going to win like 10 to 12. And I was like, okay, so one, one's got polling that says 10 to 12. One's got polling that says three to four. Well, you know, the Democrats ended up being right. Um, so they, they saw something or had something in their polling that somehow, I think in several places, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, um, you know, the Republican polling did not pick up. And, and that needs to be fixed because, you know, campaigns base their strategic decisions, their allocation on resources based on that. Um, and so, you know, that needs to be fixed. I think the other thing, really, Chris, that we have to look at is, you know, when you look at Pennsylvania, one of the things that Republicans used to do, and, and there's a huge difference here, there's a difference between ballot harvesting and what, what used to be called absentee ballot chase programs. Um, and, you know, Republicans used to do those very, very well, absentee ballot chase programs. In places like Florida, California, when they were winning elections out here, that's how they won elections, is tracking their voters, knowing who was going to vote for them, making sure they got those ballots in before the deadline so they could be counted. Um, they really didn't do that in places like Pennsylvania. Um, Fetterman, I think, out outslugged uh, Oz something like four to five to one in, in that. So, you know, we used to call those back in Providence votes in the bank yeah. um, because you knew they, they we, you knew they were your votes and, and you could count on them and you knew they were secure. Um, that's another thing I think, I think politically anyway, they have to take a look at. Let's go to friend of the show. We call him the, uh, the KTR Slayer uh, down in Sarita. Noah, what's up, buddy? Hey, I just wanted to talk about Kimberly Yee because you keep bringing her up as a great example, and I think you've missed a lot. Well, educate me, amigo. Okay. I know that Frank Sinatra is your favorite Rack Pack member, <laughs> but for this discussion, the most important one is Dean Martin. <laughs> okay. I, 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 like this, I, I like this discussion already. Go. Okay. During the elections, when Republicans weren't winning everything, they lost the governor, they lost the AG. Who won treasurer? You mean in 2022? N no. Back when Napolitano won. And oh, uh, oh d d you are correct, Dean Martin. <laughs> Dean Martin, okay. Because Democrats don't want to admit it, but they know Democrats suck at handling money. And they always vote for the Republican <laughs> treasurer. So comparing it to the Republican treasurer never makes any sense because they never win. I don't know when Arizona ever elected a Democrat treasurer, even in Pima County, where if you have a D, a toaster can win. 
a D toaster cannot win the treasurer. He's right. It's, it's, this is a good He's point. Right. I do like this. Uh, so, can, so <laughs> there's, anyway, a, there's enough people. Who didn't run for re-election during, for the second term? Only one of the races. And that was the best person we've had in office forever, Mr. Um, the old treasurer that Ducey was awful with. Um, DeWitt. A, oh, Jeff DeWitt. DeWitt. Right. So she not only was running um, as a foregone conclusion as a Republican, she was also the only incumbent. So the distrust, like the, a, the, the distrust of Democrats for, for dealing with the money, right? Was that You're saying that, that could contribute to her getting 170,000 more votes? The Republicans win treasurer forever <laughs> contributed to it. The fact that she was incumbent. And we know incumbents can win because... Baranovich won as an incumbent, even though he has disappeared for this entire administration. So we know the incumbency helps. We know incumbency, the name recognition helps because of Horn winning, despite all of his previous problems, but at least his name was recognized. So she's just a horrible example. It's not a very it's, good I, I don't know if it's a horrible it right. example, but it, I, I, I like, you're, you've given me the best answer on this so far of anybody. Because everyone else just tells me that tabulators or Katie Hobbs was running the election, and she just pressed the right buttons to screw certain people, but not other people. That's what I've heard from so Republicans. So thank you for being a, a mature a adult. Over. There's no question she screwed Abraham, the, the AG over. You know, then they lied about what ballots never got counted. He said recount on the ballots. He didn't recount the ballots. They found new ballots in the recount because they never got counted the first time. They messed up this election because they did disenfranchise people. They did mess up the signature verification and just push things through that didn't count. They definitely were manipulating the election. Now, some people are less popular than others, and I would say Fincham's pretty less popular. I don't like the guy. Right. But, oh. <laughs> and I would say that, you know, Terry Lake telling the Republicans that supported McCain, get the heck out of here probably was not growing the tent. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so I'm agreeing that, that, that they Thank said there you. were... Again, Noah, this is, this, on the this is the best discussion we've had so far about the elections right now. There, there were mishandlings on the other side, but it's not that there wasn't enough, that there still wasn't enough fraud that would have turned the election. Now, you got to win... I mean, Sean McCleskey said you have to get enough votes to, to overcome any cheating that occurred, and I agree. And you don't do that by shrinking your tent. I also think you have to see that the McCain wing of this party will never support someone on the other side. They demand support, but the money will never flow the other direction. Now, and I agree with uh, I think I agree with a portion of what you're saying about the McCain thing. But when you go after him that hard, it was a total shutoff. Just a total yeah, yeah, shutoff. He, 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 well, it's not just him, but his supporters. Because guess what? He did win every election till his, you know, he said, you'll never take my seat from, except for my cold, dead hands. And that's exactly what he did. He owned the seat because he had a big enough demographic to take it no matter what. Noah. So to go against him is bad. To go against the people that voted for him is worse. Great call, Noah. Great job, man. Thank you yeah. for... Just want to say, the Kimberly <laughs> thinks it's flawed. There's a lot of reasons you won. And when you tell me where in the last state treasurer is, maybe you can convince me that it's not a foregone conclusion that it's a Republican. No, a great call. Again, this is the best yeah. response I've had so far. So thank you, sir. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. All right, great job. Have Goodbye. a good day, Noah. There he is. You too. There's our man, Noah. We have Victoria Coates, senior research fellow. As I like to say, I always tell, don't send me any junior research fellows. I only want <laughs> senior ones. Here we are, this whole Ukrainian thing where we're in the middle of this thing, and there's so many moving parts to it from the Biden family and 
all the stuff here. What, I want to get to your piece that you guys wrote about the four questions that need to be asked. But what I want to ask you about in the first place is should we be involved in the Ukrainian-Russian thing in the first place? And if it's yes, then, of course, why? Or no? Yes. I mean, that's, that's the million-dollar question or perhaps hundred-billion-dollar question, depending right. on how you're counting. Um, and my answer would be yes, but... Uh, that that my issue here is I've been dealing with Putin's aggressions into Europe, you know, Georgia in 2008, Crimea in 2014. I was in the Senate then working for Senator Cruz when we were very uh, engaged, obviously, with that issue. I don't want to be back here on the radio with you five years from now because he's taken a bite out of Estonia or another NATO country, and we have to go in. I, I think the strategic goal for the United States right now should be to end this and, and end his aggressive ambitions so we don't wind up in a worse place down the road. Because you can't argue now that he won't, he won't do it again because, you know, he believes in international norms or whatever. He, yes, this is what he does. So... You know, we have this demonstrated pattern. The issue, the bigger issue I have is with the administration. I mean, I just think it is should be shocking to every American that last night he could stand up there and talk for more than an hour. And Ukraine got what, two sentences? Sure. After he's committed $100 billion of our dollars, uh, all of our most sensitive equipment, potentially, you know, downgraded our ability to respond to a Chinese incursion against Taiwan. He's done all these things. Where's the explanation? Where's the rationale? Where's the strategy for victory? So my other question is, going into this is also with Biden being weaker, perceived, well, just he's weaker than Trump, right? But talk about how conflicted Joe Biden and the, the family is in relation to Ukraine financially, in relation to, because that's the other part of this situation that most of the media is not going to talk about is, talk about how conflicted they are in the, anything that has to do with Ukraine in the first place, with Ukraine in the first place. No, it's, 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 shocking. And it's actually a two-headed monster because you have both the Ukrainian issues and then you have the China issues. Uh, and I think with with Ukraine, I, I remember where I was in the Senate when my then assistant came to me and said, Hunter Biden has gone on the board of Burisma. Like, what? You know, how could this happen? You know, what? who said this was a good idea? You know, and, and, and what is the rationale behind it? And you just see these companies funneling money to the family. Uh, hand over fist, and there's only one reason. They want access to Joe, and they want Joe's contacts, and they want Joe's uh, influence. And it's the same thing with China and the University of Pennsylvania that gave me that PhD in art history, and they're probably <laughs> going to take it back at this point. Uh, but, you know, they, the $55 million to the university for the Biden Center, and <laughs> Joe's getting 900 That came straight out of China. Unnamed donors, but they're Chinese. Uh, 900,000 for Joe for doing nothing for Penn for those years. And then 55 and mil to celebrate yeah. Joe Biden. And then lo and behold, now the president of Penn, who signed my diploma, Amy Gutman, is now our ambassador to Germany. And the president of the board of trustees is now David Cohen, is now our ambassador to Canada. Two of the most lucrative ambassadorships we, you can get because of the trade connections between the countries. So all of this just speaks to high heaven. Uh, and the media won't say boo about it, uh, but it, 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 it explains a lot of their behavior. They don't want to upset China. Uh, Victoria, I want to get into the four questions that you wrote in this piece, and you can go to 
uh, heritage.org to find out. It's called Russia-Ukraine War at One Year. Congress should not offer another dime until four questions are answered. Number one, you talk about has the admi- how has the administration adjusted to the intelligence failure that this was going to be a quick Russian victory. So talk us through that. Yeah, that's that's really one of the critical points. The administration came and briefed the Hill and everybody who would listen that this was going to be a three-day war. Putin would roll into Kiev. Uh, the Zelensky government would go into exile. and We would be arming an insurgency and trying to make Putin's life miserable. And one can see why they believe that. I'm not faulting them. I mean, intelligence failures happen all the time. But it's what happens when you figure out what actually is going on. And so, you know, I first weighed in on this last April when it became clear that that it wasn't I mean that the Ukrainians could win, that they were fighting back and doing so bravely. And I think rightly have enjoyed the admiration of the international community. But my good friend, Representative Chip Roy from from Texas and I wrote an op-ed just in April on the Hill saying, you know, what are we doing here? You know, it was $1.3 billion last week. This week you want $33 billion. The Republicans in Congress are plussing it up to 50 it, What what Yikes. What's happening? And, you know, at that point, we needed to hear, okay, actually we are going to now pivot to arming the Ukrainians to win. And in which case, you know, if you're going to send a patriot, send it last July so that they can win by the end of the summer. And we're not still here, you know, a year into this grinding, terrible war you know, with the ever-present threat of escalation. So we really wanted to hear from the administration, you know, at the one-year mark, uh, you know, what, what they, how, how they had changed their strategy and what the strategy was, and that simply has not been forthcoming. The, uh, so I guess the question is, especially because Ukraine's so important for world grain supply, fertilizer, I mean, with all the other things going on on this planet, and, you know, in, in America with a dozen eggs or $8 now, um, it's such an important area for what's going on globally. I guess the thing is, why why are we letting it drag on? And actually, why hasn't why didn't Putin roll roll them in three days? Well, they they fought back, and uh, I think we had done a lot of training uh, of the Ukrainians during the Trump administration. Uh, it, you know, in, out of concerns that something like this might have happened, so they were better equipped and better trained than I think Putin understood. Uh, Putin's war machine is not everything it's been cracked up to be, and that's something else I'd actually like to hear from the intelligence community is why they were telling us for low these many years that Russia was basically invincible when it turns out they're not. Uh, and so I think you know, for for those reasons, uh, you know, the Ukrainians have been able to both maintain their positions and now, you know, they can make some advances. And I think that that is when the administration needed to say, Okay, we're in it to win it. But instead, they've been very timid and incremental in the assistance they've been willing to give. And, and that's why I you know, have felt compelled to ask, you know, why am I spending taxpayer dollars to perpetuate a stalemate? I have a friend who has a son in the uh, Marines, and all of a sudden he said in the last 30 days they've kind of changed his whole thing on what he's doing and uh, and where they've just they've just shipped him out to, where he's getting, they're, they're worried about they're going to send him into Ukraine soon. What are you What are you seeing on the military deployment side of this? Well, that's obviously the constant worry. I mean, my my grandfather was second wave into D Day uh, in World War II, and he fought his way across Europe so that his great grandson, my son, doesn't have to. So I think really it would be you know the height of your responsibility for the administration to allow this to escalate to the point that we would have to send 
Americans uh, to, to fight this war. And, and quite frankly, the Ukrainians that I've spoken to don't want that. Uh, they, they feel that this is their fight. This is their country. They're obviously grateful for the aid and they need it, uh, you know, if they are going to win. But but they're not calling for American boots on the ground. And, and I think that that should be kept that way. Uh, and nothing nothing good will come from Americans in a ground war in Europe right now. So we got about a little less than three minutes. So but let's let's just talk end game, right? Because one of your questions is, what does the administration see as the end game? I guess I'm going to ask you, what's a, what's a what's an appropriate end game for Ukraine? Forget about the Biden people; they're insane. So, what what do you think is the appropriate end game? <laughs> well, as I said in the previous segment, the the end game for me is not this is not going to happen again. That we we end end Putin's ability to mount this kind of aggressive uh, aggressive action and convince him that he is worse off if he doesn't get out of Ukraine than if, if he perce- persists. And, you know, the Ukrainians will have, you know, their issues that been, when we get to some kind of negotiation, which is inevitable, it will happen. But it should happen from a position of Ukrainian strength, you know, with clarity on what Washington is, is what are our red lines. So when you, uh, I suppose when you say take away his ability to do this again, so okay, let's say he goes out with his tail between his legs, saving a little face going out. How how does he? How do we stop him from doing it again? Well, I think we have to continue the really crushing economic sanctions that only we can apply, and they're certainly strengthened when the Europeans come along with us. But we, we're going to have to starve him of resources until he is willing to demonstrate that he he is not going to maintain the ability to inflict violent mayhem on his on his neighbors. You know, I would much rather he does it for the good of humanity, but he's not going to. So he has to be, as I said, starved of resources. And that gets us into the energy issue, which I'm sure is of great interest to your listeners. And we can come back to that another day. But it's why the United States should be flexing as an energy superpower sure. that can make up for any any Russian exports that we take off the market in order to curb Putin's behavior. Amen. Well, Victoria, thanks for uh, thanks for filling us in on a lot of the stuff. I appreciate the conversation. Thanks. Take care, Chris. Victoria Coates. Let's go to the sports intern, Ryan Larson. Sorry, sports director in charge of sports and mm-hmm. entertainment and athlete representation. Um, Ryan Larson, welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks, Chris. I was just ch- I wanted to check before we get started to make sure you got uh, my reimbursement uh, request for my Super Bowl ticket. Uh, make sure you're going to cover that. I did. Uh, we work with a company that's in uh, in India, and they uh-huh. uh, they process it. So I don't know if it came back yet, but they should have went directly to your house. So that's but, weird. I haven't seen that yet. I've been, I've been waiting. So I have a one uh, eight hundred line for you to call to track that. So that'll be just fine. <laughs> uh, there's a Super Bowl uh, coming up on Sunday for entertainment purposes only. What's the spread on this game? Last I saw, it was Eagles by a point and a half. Might have moved one or two or half a point in either direction, but generally that's what you'll see is about a point and a half for the Eagles, which I think really speaks to how much Vegas respects Patrick Mahomes. Because you just, I was going through the rosters last night and just looking at who I feel better about. And basically every position that's not tight end or quarterback, the Eagles have a pretty clear advantage. There's a few, like the Chiefs are good on their offensive line too, but the Eagles have the best offensive line in football. The Eagles have led, the Chiefs were second in the NFL in sacks generated this season. They had 55 sacks from their defensive line. The Eagles were first with 70, which is a massive gap of 15 sacks, like another sack a game for the Eagles. And then the Chiefs secondary is probably their clearest 
sweet spot. The Eagles secondary is pretty good. And then in terms of offensive weaponry, yes, the Chiefs have Kelsey, and Kelsey's awesome. And the Eagles are not going to be able to guard him the entire game, but the Eagles get to throw out A.J. Smith, or A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith. They have Miles Sanders at running back. Dallas Goddard, who is the Eagles tight end, he's not the best tight end in football, but he is probably a top five or six tight end. So you just go across the entire roster, and it's like the Eagles just have talent everywhere. There's just guys that you, you like. They they have the best offensive line in football, maybe the best defensive line. They're just they're good all around all across the board. And then the Chiefs, you look at it and it's like, I really love Chandler Jones or Chris Jones on the defensive line. I really love what uh Kelsey does, and then I love Mahomes. And that's the the clearest gap right there, the gap between Mahomes and Hurts. And, but everywhere else it leans Eagles. And I think that's that's why the Eagles are favored in this game. But if the Eagles were playing a team with a lesser quarterback, maybe even just like a, a Dak Prescott type of player. This line is probably closer to five or six, I would guess. Maybe almost a touchdown. That's just the Chiefs just have shown again and again that with Mahomes, it doesn't matter how far down you are. You're not completely out of the game because he's just on another level. So what's the uh, Larson prediction for this game? What, 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 where are you going here? Score and winner. Score and winner. Okay, so... This is one I don't feel good about because, like I just talked about, I don't feel good betting against Mahomes, but I'm going to go Eagles just because I look at what the Eagles can do running the ball, and that's just some a place where the Chiefs have struggled, both in stopping the run, and the Chiefs themselves can't run the ball either, which plays into the Eagles' defensive favorite. The Eagles are better against the pass than they are against the run, and so if the Chiefs were able to run the ball effectively, like Isaiah Pacheco is okay at running back for the Chiefs, but I think the, the Chiefs are going to struggle to run the ball in this game, and then that's going to be good for the Eagles, and then I I also think that the Eagles are going to be able to dominate on the offensive line. I expect them to win that battle as good as Jones is, as good as George Karlaftis is for the for the Chiefs, as good as they hope Frank Clark will be. I think the Eagles' offensive line wins that battle. I think they're able to run the ball and control the game, and that Jalen Hurts will 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 have some of the pressure taken off of him. So I think the Eagles win 27-24, and I think it's going to be a good game. But if, if things go sideways for the Eagles, they have not been tested once in this playoff. They destroyed the Giants, and then they got in free pass against the 49ers who didn't have a quarterback. If the Chiefs can throw an early punch, get into a lead, it's going to be really interesting to see what the Eagles can do with their backs against the wall for the first time in the postseason. And for really Jalen Hurts, who this is this is his first deep playoff run. They played one game in the playoffs last year, lost by a million to the, the Bucks. I, I that, That's the way the, Eagles, the Chiefs win this, is that they get out to an early lead, and then the Eagles are a little bit shell-shocked from that because it's not something they're used to at all this season. Matt, what do you think? What's your, what's your prediction for the score? What do you got? Well, I, I want Philadelphia to win, but I think Casey's going to win it. I can't tell you score. I, I couldn't even guess, but I, well, I, I think Casey's going to win it. I'm going to take my shot here. Um, KC 35, Eagles 18. I think it's going to be You a, really wow. don't believe in the Eagles. Nope. So beating up on those those hapless giants didn't show me much. So um, I'm telling you. So we're going we're going for KC for a definitive victory on, uh, on, um, on Sunday. So that's my take. So... Let's go to U.S. Congressman David Schweikert. David, good morning. You know how to have all the fun, don't you? We're getting there. We're getting there, buddy. I got a, I got a quote for you. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. Uh, who said, who said that, David Schweikert? How do how do mandatory programs sunset? <laughs> um, but 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 what was okay? Let's take this really seriously for a moment. Um. That is, if it's not evil, no, no, seriously, what the president did, it doesn't almost cross into evil. The willingness to demonstrate his campaign kickoff 
he cared so much more about sort of is the pop term gaslighting. It is um, Americans. The reality of it is we have an actuarial problem, and this isn't Republican or Democrats. It's math. Um, Social Security trust fund is gone in ten years. And that basically means the typical, well, Social Security recipients will get about a 23% cut in, in the latest update, which is only 10 days old. So you're going to double senior poverty in America. And you think an honorable person holding the presidency would stand up and say, I need everyone's help. This has to be done bipartisan because it's such a third rail issue. We're going to do this together. We are going to not allow the doubling of senior poverty in America we are going to find a way to fix the trust fund. Instead, instead, the man standing up there giving us the State of the Union chose to start his presidential campaign with making it so toxic that now you can't talk about it. So, so a year's worth of work where Republicans and Democrats in quiet little spaces and back rooms have been with actuaries and spending all this money trying to figure out, because the math is a lot harder than people understand. The brain trust out there, just raise the spending cap. I did a thing on the floor last night showing you raise the taxable portion of Social Security, just just raise it so every dime of all income is subject to the 12.4%. And... You, you, you do the incremental benefits also increase. You only cover 17% of the shortfall. If you make it just pure tax, there's no additional benefits. You cover 31% of the shortfall. Okay, now what do you do? It, 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 it's the, the, the dribble coming out of the left of, well, just raise more taxes. The numbers are so ugly, it doesn't fix the problem. And, the time, and the now time, we can't talk about it. The timing of this is so peculiar because when we had you on two times ago, you just came off of your speech on the floor where you were talking about the press when they said, oh, Republicans exactly. want to kill the Republican Party. And then after you made fun of the press and you like got pissed off about that, then the crazy guy says that crap on well, Tuesday night. Well, which, which you have to understand, and, and that's partially why you could see it coming. Um, it looks like what the Democrats did is a couple months ago, they did a bunch of focus groups and polling and said one of the ba- greatest ways, because too many seniors are voting for Republicans, um, young people are committed to voting for Democrats, even if we screw them over with higher taxes and other things. Um, uh, they just don't understand enough about what's going on economically. So the Democrats need incrementally more of the senior vote. So let's actually turn this into an issue. We'll attack Republicans on it. We'll create questions in people's minds. And so not enough folks who think they're political understand it's math. They do focus groups. They do poll after poll after poll, then test messages. Um, They'll spend millions of dollars testing messages. And then the president will get up and use it in the State of the Union. Now watch what happens over the next couple months. You're going to see it as a talking point in the Democrats, but you're going to also start to see it come up in their ads and their mailings and their discussion groups on talking head groups on television. It's the beginning of the 2024 presidential race, and this was the first salvo. So remember, coming out of the after the 2020 election and they saw that they were losing Hispanic and black voters to Republicans, the first thing that came out was Republicans are a bunch of racists. Yep. And... For for folks on the uh, Republican side who who get 
all upset saying, why can't Republicans stay on message? Why can't we be unified? Um, you're about to live it all over again. You know, we run around and often some of our favorite people say crazy things and it completely blows up the messaging. The Democrats actually spend all this money testing the message and then they march in lockstep because take a look at a state like Arizona. Winning or losing is a tiny percentage of the voters. Yep. It is a battle for that little bit of the population that don't pay a lot of attention to us, that tune in at the last moment or get little dribbles. And it's about that population. If you're a Republican, you already know how you're voting. If you're a Democrat, you already know how you're voting. It's that. And that's what this game is all about right now. And what the Democrats have decided to do is be incredibly destructive. We need, from just a moral standpoint, to step up and, and, and keep our promises. And because they've politicized everything, now it's almost impossible to have those um, discussions. I was glad that, uh, you know, cause I know some of these people, when they were, they were upset that the Republicans, when he said that, were kind of yelling at him at the meeting, uh, at, the, at the speech. I was kind of cool with it because you just can't let that one go quietly by. We're going to take a call from Sean. He had, he had, a, he had a budget question for you. I figured, All right, you know, shoot. you're my budget wonk, as we like to say. Uh, extraordinaire. Uh, Sean, you're on with Congressman Schweikert. What's up, sir? What would happen? What would happen, Congressman, if we actually passed a balanced budget? What do you think would happen to the U.S. economy? Um, how soon do you have to be in balance? Is it five years, 10 uh, years, so, 25 years? No, I'm talking tomorrow, dude. I'm talking so tomorrow. tomorrow. What would happen if we tomorrow, didn't up? You base, you, are you allowed to cut Social Security and Medicare? I didn't say anything. I said, can we balance the budget? Well, sure you can. What would I happen to, to the U.S. I have to shut. I have to, in, I have to shut down the military. And I have to shut down most discretionary spending. So, so let, let, let me ask a sub, um, let me put a substitute question here: to successfully uh, cut to balance a budget and not do the dramatic cuts that you're talking about and crap out Social Security and Medicare, David, how long would it actually take to reasonably do something well, like that? It, it, you see, see, it's in some ways it's just the reverse because. Um, the baby boomers, the last oh, few years of the baby boomers are moving into retirement. So they're moving into their earned benefits. Let's use the 10-year number from now. So, so the 2034 budget, so 10 years from now, we did, um, I did a presentation on the floor of the House last night. Now, we haven't done the interest adjustments because you'd save some interest because you've been cutting spending and the bond markets might treat you better. But here's the flatline number. I would have to get rid of the entire military and the entire government. So all the park service, the FBI, the FDA, everything's gone. All, it's all gone just so I can, and I would still be paying all Social Security, all Medicare. I still have to borrow $300 billion. So all government is gone and the military. And guess what? The punchline gets uglier because the very next year, I now have about a 23% shortfall in the Social Security Trust Fund, because the trust fund is gone. And so if you start to pay that now out of general fund, the borrowing actually goes up even more dramatically. And that's with all the tax cuts, you know, from the, in those things all expiring. Um, so, and that's with no wars, no recessions, no pandemics. Um, people have no understanding. <laughs> yeah, just, it, just within a few years... 
percent of all spending is just things like Medicare and Social Security and every and the rest of that. So that the remaining, you know, 20, 22, 23% depends on where you're at um, that year is that's the rest of the government. That's all the defense. That's everything else you think of as government. We are an insurance company with an army. Is there a way out towards a balance? Oh, sure. But, but, so what's but the way it out? Turns out, but it turns out you have to do big boy thinking. You actually have to think like an economist, and it's a complex problem. It's a complex solution. It's not just this price. Just cut foreign aid. Foreign aid takes care of like two weeks of borrowing. Um, <laughs> what you have to do is you've got to adopt regulatory policies, tax policy, trade policies, immigration policies that grow the economy like crazy. And then over here, you have to adopt technologies and cures and all sorts of things to crash the price of health care. Because almost all that future debt is healthcare. It's the math. It's not me personally. It's the math. Can I say something? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for telling the truth. Because it's it's painful. And and most people don't want to get into that math thing Mm -hmm. that we got to do. Bless you. Bless you. Sean, thanks for the call. I got to get one more question in for the uh, congressman. Listener Mike, I've attached a page from Romero's Climate Action Plan. It's from the section titled How Extreme Heat Impacts Tucson. Please read the first paragraph on the page. Okay. Here we go. Quote, frontline communities often experience higher temperatures than affluent white communities. Yes! In these neighborhoods, a lack of vegetation and permeable surfaces amplify urban heat island effect. What? So, 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 okay, so she's saying that, so I have so many questions here, right? So many. I have an atomic eye roll, but that's my problem. What's a front, what's a frontline community? What is a frontline community, Chris? So what does that mean? It's okay. It's okay. We'll just keep going. Then they have higher temperatures than affluent white neighborhoods. Okay, we're already in the we're already in the racist world already here. Race baiting. Now, if she wanted class baiting, class baiting too. Now, if she wanted to say that the suburbs, which are higher affluence, have possibly less time, ta- I I could have that discussion. But why do you have to put affluent white neighborhoods? Thank you. Are you saying that all affluent neighborhoods, Rahina, are white? Is that what she's does, saying? When she says affluent, does she mean like gated communities on hillsides? Does you mean she like mean where that? she lives? <laughs> I mean, she lives in painted hills. Com- is that she's a sign a, of an affluent community? She's in the... Af- so, which, so, good. Hold on. You're going to get... Hold on. Okay. So, what you're saying is... Do you have a gate on your neighborhood? I don't on mine. I don't. So she lives. So what you're saying, Rahina, living at the foothills of the Tucson mountains in painted hills, that you basically would rather live in a affluent white community the neighborhood than hanging out with people you say are your people I in the center part of town. She's part of the problem. Oh my God! So Rahina Romero, I just want to. She admits this. This is huge. She is affluent and white. That's amazing. This is like the, um, remember they had the, uh, in Chappelle's show, they had the racial draft, right? Rahina has now been traded. She's now like in I the affluent to, night, white neighborhood. I almost feel like I need to run the bake, breaking news stinger here. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in. Hi, this is Christy Simone, and according to Rahina Marrero's climate action plan and where she lives, she is an affluent white woman. So she feels your pain. <laughs> So now let's get to this. In these neighborhoods, lack of vegetation, 
lack of vegetation. Lack of vegetation. Do they have a lack of vegetation in, quote, the center part of town? There was, I, I mean, think there's a, more grass in the center part of town than... A lot of mature trees. Yeah. I mean, a lot more than some of the little crappy trees that are in, you know, cookie cutter subdivisions in the burbs. Sure. I'm just... I, 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 I agree with you. <laughs> One of the listeners just texted me, does Raul know she's white? <laughs> So now let's get to the next. I, I got. I have so many questions. It's only one sentence. So many questions. Impermeable surfaces. Uh, I t- I take exception with that because <laughs> Tucson streets are not impermeable surfaces. <laughs> that is a lie. <sighs> All right. Now, again, I, <laughs> there's so many ways to go with this. All right. Here we go. Let's get to this. Let's ask Google. What is the definition of impermeable? Impermeable, not allowing fluid to pass through. All right. So, uh, now Google Girl is supporting Matt here. Okay. So, how many of Tucson streets don't allow water in in through all of the cracks and around them? Would that be like 10% of the... So in this one sentence, thank you, Mike, for sending it to me. This is amazing. So we're still figuring out frontline community. So what, okay, so now think about that. I, I think I got the definition. So we're having fun. Uh, a listener, Mike, sent us the first paragraph of the Rahina Romero Climate Action Plan. Frontline communities often experience higher temperatures in affluent white neighborhoods. In these neighborhoods, a lack of vegetation and impermeable services amplify urban heat island effect. You could say suburban neighborhoods. I could have that to Discussion? You want to do suburban and rural neighborhoods? I can have that discussion. Definition of frontline. Here's the definition of frontline, the military line or part of an army that is closest to the enemy. Oh, okay. Wow. So, that was an unexpected term. Let me do an updated one for Tucson 2023. I'm trying to trying to channel the, uh, the mayor here, which is very painful. Um, frontline is any community she doesn't live in, and she prefers not to live in. So this is from um, Mr. Flores' wife. This morning, you, this is a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago when I mentioned this. This morning on the show, you mentioned briefly the deaths that have taken place at the Pima County Jail. Chris, the last person who died there was my husband, Jose. The story behind his death there was is horrible. We were married for 41 years, separated in 2021. Jose was in law enforcement for more than 30 years. MP in the Army, Border Patrol for 15, ICE for the last 17. Something went wrong. His thinking, personality, ability to manage his anger. That's why I left out of fear of watching his change take place from 16 to 2021. He died in the Pima County Jail. I wrote another comment dealing, dealing, detailing his having been shot three times. He was a patient at Banner for a month. Then he was transferred to the jail where he died. So I asked the question, was he transferred too soon? What was the specific cause of death? He goes, she had uh, nine surgeries. He had nine surgeries, a ventilator, and a mentally induced coma, and a rod in his leg to replace the shattered bones. Then approximately one week before being transferred, the ventilator was moved, and a tracheotomy was done, and a feeding tube added. Jose's right lung was torched from the gunshots. He was then transferred with no notice to his daughters and no notice to me as his medical power of attorney. Though I'm separated, I'm still legally his wife. So basically, this guy was a medical train wreck. That sounds like I got to see if she'll if she would be willing to call the show. Was this guy transferred to the Pima County Jail too soon? Because 
I, from what she just said, and the idea that her and the daughters were not notified, well, that's that's not bueno. That's not bueno at all. That was the shooting at Sam's or whatever. Huh? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Correct. Boy, it sure sounds like it, huh? So we'll find out. We'll find out more, as we like to say. 